if we could only choose one or maybe two words to describe what is happening in America right now, or maybe I could say it this way, the nation as a whole, if you could only use one or two words to describe the nation as a whole right now, what word would you use? Well, I've been thinking about that last week. And the first word that I came up with is the word divided. Our country seems more divided right now than it has at any time in my lifetime. Now, I know if we go back in American history, uh, we can see other times where the nation was even more divided than it is right now. But I'm saying in the years that I have been living, I don't think I've ever seen our country more divided. And not only that, I don't think I have ever seen our country more angry. There is so much anger in the world today. So we have these two, two dynamics going on. We have a pandemic on the one hand that is frustrating us, wearing us down, and making us weary. And then we have, uh, in America, a divided and an angry country. So you put these two things together, and it is explosive. And that's why I say there has never been in the history of our nation a time quite like this. There's so much anger in the world. You know, it used to be, for example, let me talk about politics just for a moment. It used to be that Democrats and Republicans simply disagreed with each other on issues. In our world today, it seems that not all, but many Democrats and Republicans don't just disagree with each other, they hate each other, and they demonize each other. And a, what, I think what has happened in our country is that an us versus them mentality has developed. And certainly we're seeing that on the national level and even on the state level politically and, and even in the local levels and in, in the communities and in our cities, we can even see this. It's like us and them and there's this anger and there's this, uh, there's this tension and there's this division. But it's not only in the world of politics, although it is, it's, it's certainly and obviously there, but we're seeing this all across life in families. So many times there is, there's anger and there's tension and there's strife, but we see it in businesses, see it in schools, see it in neighborhoods. We see it in churches sometimes. And sometimes in churches, we even see... Certainly, I mean, it could be that in, a, in one church, you have people that are disagreeing with each other. Thankfully, God, one of the things I'm so thankful for about First Baptist, it just has, there's just such a sweet spirit here. There's a kindred spirit here in, at First Baptist. But sometimes I'll hear some churches criticizing other churches. Maybe there's another church out there in the community or another church somewhere, and that pastor or that church, they do church a little bit differently than how this other church does it. And so churches are so quick to criticize each other. And I think, what in the world? I mean, here's how I look at that. There are a lot of churches who do church differently than we do, and a lot of pastors and preachers who preach differently than my dad and I do. I look at it like this. If they're preaching the Bible as the inerrant, perfect Word of God, and if they're preaching that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, I'd have nothing to criticize them for. I mean, they're, they're trying to further the cause of Christ, and so they have my full support. And yet, I think sometimes, whether it's jealousy whether it's resentment or maybe sometime a person just thinks, well, they're really not doing it the right way. But if we're not careful, we can become super critical of others. And I want to just encourage you, whether it's in politics or with other churches or in your own family, try your best to walk in love and not to walk in 
in divisiveness, in tension, and in anger. Now, at the beginning of the message today, I want to give you a scripture verse from the New Testament. You might want to jot this down. If you have your Bibles with you, you might want to look it up. But in Ephesians chapter number 4, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, W.A. Criswell used to say, he used to call this the sweetest verse in all the Bible, Ephesians 4.32. And here's what Paul said, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. Now, if this were a normal Sunday and the chapel were full or the worship center had a full crowd out there today, maybe we would put that, uh, all those words on the screen and maybe we would even quote that verse or read that verse together, but that's not possible. So let me just quote it to you again and you follow along. Ephesians 4.32, Paul said, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. And so we all sin every day and we hurt people's feelings. And sometimes we don't even mean to hurt their feelings. And so we ourselves stand in need of forgiveness. Well, other people are the same way. Just like it's easy for us to say of ourselves, well, I'm not perfect. We have to understand the other people aren't perfect either. And so they mess up and they hurt your feelings and they say things and do things and maybe they're rude or whatever. And so you have to, you have to be kind, tenderhearted, and you have to forgive them just like God has forgiven you. And so just like we want others to forgive us, we have to forgive them. And so, you know, as I think about this pandemic and I think about what must be in the mind of God, why has God allowed this thing to come into the world? And now why is God allowing it to linger on and on and on? And, and we don't really know when it's going to end. Why, what could be in the mind of God? I don't know fully the mind of God, but I know this. If we were down at Galveston today or maybe down there last night, whenever the tide came in, you know when the tide comes in on the shore of an ocean, when the tide goes out, it takes most everything that was on the shore. You could have kids out all day on a beautiful Saturday building a sandcastle. And they build a big three or four story sandcastle and they've got, I mean, just, just a lot of that beach is devoted to that sandcastle. But when the tide comes in, it washes that castle away, and when the tide goes out, it takes that sand out to sea. Not only does it take the sand castle out, if there are bottles, if there are cans, if there are plastic wrappers, any kind of debris. That's why at the, at the ocean, they're always trash cans pretty easily accessible because they're trying to keep the ocean clean. Because what do they know? They know that when the tide comes in and then the tide goes out, that it takes out all the junk, all the debris, and all the things that were just there uh, sitting loose. Well, you know, one thing I was thinking yesterday, this pandemic is kind of like the tide coming in. It's like a big wave that has hit the shores of our lives, but one day the tide's going to go out. The wave that has crashed uh, on the shore will go back out to sea, and when it goes back out to sea, I'm praying that it will take with it everything in my life that didn't belong there whether that was fear or worry or anxiety, or as we're talking about today, if it's bitterness, anger, unforgiveness, holding a grudge, wouldn't it be an awesome thing if when this whole pandemic is over and the tide goes back out to sea, it would take with it all the bitterness and the resentment that might have accumulated in our heart over the years. And what I'm saying to you today is it may well be 
that one of the things that is in the mind of God right now, and one of the reasons, maybe the primary reason that God is allowing this coronavirus to continue on like it is now is because God's looking at the situation and God says, the people can't see what I see, but from my perspective, it's like a big wave that has crashed on the shore of their lives. But when that wave goes out, when that tide goes out, if the people will use this time to evaluate and examine their hearts and do business with me, I will take out of their lives, whether it's sin or whatever it might be. Today, we're specifically talking about bitterness and resentment. God says, I'll take it out of their lives. And when this whole thing's over, they'll look back on it and say, you know what? What I thought was the worst thing that could have happened to me in this coronavirus turned out to be the best thing that could have happened to me because the trash has all been taken out to sea and my heart is clean and pure before God. And so that being said, here's the question that I want to ask you this morning. How can a person who has been hurt by somebody else, a person who has been uh, wounded in some way, whether that was physical, whether that was emotional, whether that was verbal, a person that has been, uh, who's been hurt in some way, how can a person who's been through a real painful experience in life come to a place where their heart is full of love and their heart is free of bitterness, where the bitterness has been taken out to sea and the bitterness isn't there anymore. So that's the question that I want us to think about today. And even as I was asking that question, I don't know if you could hear it where you are, but I could hear the thunder crashing here uh, inside the chapel I, just the, as this storm is passing by. And I just, when I heard that thunder, I almost felt like it was God's way of saying, this is the topic. You have my full support and my full endorsement and my presence with you today, John, because you are talking about a subject that everybody on the planet, you talk about a pandemic, I'll tell you what's on the planet today, a pandemic of anger and a pandemic of bitterness and resentment. And what God is saying, let this storm, this coronavirus, this wave that has crashed, let it take it out of your life and take it out to sea. So how can we be full of love? That's the question. And how can we be free of bitterness? That's, that's a great question. I want to try to answer it today. So open your Bibles now to Genesis chapter 37, or at least turn there if you already had your Bibles open for Ephesians 4. Now turn to the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 37. We began last Sunday morning a three-week study on the life of Joseph. We know that the life of Joseph is recorded for us in Genesis chapters 37 through 50. If you're not in a Bible reading plan right now, I would just suggest that you set aside a couple of weeks and each day read one chapter beginning in Genesis 37 all the way through 50. You'll get the entire story of Joseph. It would be two weeks well spent at a chapter a day. Now, Last week, we saw that, and I'll give a very brief review here, that if anybody in the world had a reason to be bitter, it was Joseph. Now, last week, we were talking about Joseph's faith and how he endured all he went through. Today, we're talking about how did he keep his heart free from bitterness and full of love. Here's a man whose, when he was 17 years of age, his brothers turned against him. They hated him. They envied him. They were jealous of him. They threw him in a pit. And then they got to feeling guilty about it, and they thought, well, we don't want to be guilty of bloodshed. So they pulled him out of the pit. They sold him to a group of people who were heading down to Egypt. So now they're making money off their brother. 
Joseph gets to Egypt. He gets a job for a high-ranking government official, so things seem to be looking up for Joseph. And after a few, a little bit of time on that job, that government official's wife falsely accuses jo- Joseph of rape. He's imprisoned, and now he's languishing in an Egyptian prison. I'm saying to you, if anybody had an excuse, a valid reason <laughs> to have a, hold a grudge against his brothers, against that lady who accused him, against the people who believed her accusation without any kind of a trial or giving him a chance to tell his side of the story, and then if that's not bad enough, one of the people he was in the prison with, after he got released, he says to Joseph, I'm going to remember you and speak a good word to Pharaoh to you when I get out of here, and he got out of that prison. He forgot all about Joseph, and so now Joseph is forgotten. He could have been bitter toward that man, and yet as we read and study the life of Joseph, we find that he was free of bitterness against, not towards his brothers, he wasn't bitter, towards the woman who accused him, toward the people who believed her, or towards the man who forgot him. He had a heart that was free of bitterness. Now, I stand by the statement that he had a heart that was free of bitterness, but to to make that statement 100% accurate, I have to say it this way. His heart was free, completely free of bitterness at the end of the book of Genesis. I want to show you a verse in just a moment that makes me believe that here comes that thunder again. I think God is just preaching, helping me preach this sermon. I think I'm going to show you a verse that's going to show us. I think there was a time in the middle of all that Joseph was going through that even Joseph struggled with bitterness a little bit. He had a battle going on. And you know, misery loves company. And it does me good to know that somebody as amazing as Joseph, who himself was an Old Testament picture of Jesus, that he struggled with bitterness. Now, Jesus never struggled with that, but Joseph did. Now, let's just pick up reading. Turn to the end of chapter number 41. The end of chapter 41, and look at the very last verse of that chapter. That's verse number 57. It says, so all the countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in all the lands. And so this is a pandemic now. This is everywhere. It was not just that there was a famine in Israel. There was a famine everywhere. And so Joseph, the seven years leading up to this famine, had been storing up grain, not only for the Egyptian people, but for everybody who came there. And so the word is out. There's grain down in Egypt. Everybody's going to Egypt to buy grain. Well, Joseph's brothers, who assume by now that he's dead or certainly that he is, they'll never see him again, they go to Egypt to buy some grain. They had no idea that they would be able to see Joseph and that he was the one who was actually going to be selling them the grain. And so his brothers, 10 of his brothers, his youngest brother Benjamin did not go. He stayed back in Israel with Jacob, their father. But the other 10 brothers came. In fact, Look in verse number one of chapter 42. When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, uh, Jacob said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, indeed, I have heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. So Joseph's 10 brothers went to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, lest some calamity befall him. So Jacob was thinking, I've already lost my son Joseph, 
And I don't want to lose my youngest son, Benjamin, so he didn't let Benjamin go. Verse 5, and the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. And so when his ten brothers got to Egypt, they're going to this man who's selling grain. They bow down before him. But it's been so long since they had seen Joseph, and they're thinking he's either dead or he's, he's working some job behind the scenes. That They never dreamed this was Joseph. They didn't recognize Joseph, but he recognized them. He knew that these were his brothers. Now look in verse 7, and this is the verse that says to me, I believe Joseph struggled a little bit with bitterness. He didn't just forgive immediately and automatically and without any struggle. He, 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 he did struggle. Look in verse 7. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them. Now watch this. And spoke roughly to them. That word roughly literally means harshly to them. And what did he say? He said, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph, verse 8, recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And so here we're seeing in Joseph, when he first saw his brothers, undoubtedly in his mind, he's thinking to himself, they hated me. They envied me. My father gave me a nice jacket, and they resented that. They threw me in a pit, then they sold me to the slave traders, the Ishmaelites going down to Egypt. And so they, and I think Joseph, as a human being, And we have to remember this, we're human. And there's something about our human nature, and even God has this, that we demand justice. When we see something happening in the world that is wrong, we want there to be justice. And when somebody does something against us, they say something that's not right, they try to hurt us in some way, they try to characterize us in some way that is not fully accurate or true, and they try to make themselves look good by making us look bad. As human beings, we say, this isn't right. Where's the justice? And so the human heart has a God-given desire and a cry for justice to take place. And I think that's what Joseph was experiencing here. When he saw his brothers, he thought to himself, what they did wasn't right. And now they're coming to me, and I'm supposed to sell them grain so that they can live. So he spoke harshly, and he spoke roughly. So we see a little bit of this animosity in Joseph's heart. But now, look down to verse number 24 of the same chapter, because in chapter 24, we see another part of Joseph's heart. And it says, he, now he's in the presence of his brothers, and he's thinking to himself about, I'm in the presence of my brothers. I never thought I would see them again. It says, and he turned himself away from them and wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain to restore every man's money to his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. Uh, Thus he did for them. And so Joseph now, at first he spoke harshly to them because he wanted justice. But then he got thinking, these are my brothers I love my brothers, and his heart was tender toward his brothers. And so they were going back to Canaan, and he put grain. He filled their sacks up with grain, and they had paid him money. He put the money back in the He's being very merciful, very tender. And he kept his one brother, Simeon, there so that they would be sure to come back and he, he was kind of keeping them as, he was keeping him as a collateral uh, goods, as it were, so they would be sure uh, to come back and get him. So we see in Joseph, on the one hand, I want justice. What has happened isn't right. And yet, on the other hand, 
we see a very tender-hearted man. In fact, all the way through Genesis in this story, on and off, and we'll see some more verses in a moment, we find Joseph crying, weeping. His heart is touched. He's tender. And I, I thought about that even yesterday. I already had the sermon prepared on Monday, but I thought about that again yesterday, and I thought, Joseph is having the same struggle that we have. He found that it's not always easy to forgive people who've hurt us. Sometimes it is a process that we have to work ourselves through. And sometimes on the inside of us, we have this same struggle going on that Joseph had. And yet, at the end of the day, love won out. Joseph forgave his brothers. And he ended the story, uh, not speaking harshly, but he ended the story, as we'll see at the end, by speaking very kindly to his brothers. And so the question, again, I took taking a long time to build up to it, and I'm, I'm pretty bad about always doing that. But I'm just trying to set the stage. The question is, how can we be full of love and free of bitterness? And so I want to make three observations this morning from Joseph's life. And if you're a note taker, this is a super easy sermon to take notes on. And probably last week, if you had done what I did and studied and thought and prayed about this, you would have come up with basically the same thing I came up with. But the first thing, the first thing that Joseph did that helped him to forgive his brothers and to be free of bitterness and anger is that he kept his theology sharp. He kept his theology sharp. Now, when I first wrote that point on Monday, the way I worded it was, uh, Joseph had a good theology. Theology just refers to what we believe about God. But then I got thinking about it. I thought, well, it was more than just having a good theology. Joseph kept his theology sharp by putting his theology into practice during the circumstances and challenges of life. I think most people who read their Bibles, come to church, hear preaching, and go to connection groups or Sunday school classes, read Christian books, I think most people have a fairly good theology. And we believe God is in control. We believe that God has a plan. We believe that God knows what he's doing. We believe that God can bring good out of bad. Most of us, if we were taking a test, would ace that test. I think what we struggle with is putting our theology into practice in the real issues of life. And so that's why I've worded this to say Joseph kept his theology sharp. When everything turned against him, he put his theology into practice. Now, look in Genesis chapter number 45. I want to show you how he did that because right in the thick of everything that Joseph was going through, we see that he is putting his faith into practice. And in fact, if you just look in chapter 45, verse 1, let me read the first eight verses of chapter 45. Then Joseph could not restrain himself by all those who stood by him, and he cried out, make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Now, by this time, his brothers have returned to Canaan, taken the food to uh, Jacob, the grain, and now they have come back to Egypt for the second time. And so now he's in the presence of his brothers alone. Verse 2, and he wept aloud, and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. See, I'm telling you, Joseph is weeping. He's a tenderhearted fellow. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my brother still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. So they came near then he said, I'm Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. So for the first time, Joseph is telling his brothers who he is. And they are completely shocked. But look in verse 5. 
But now, do not there be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And so Joseph was able to see the hand of God in this adversity and this difficulty that he had been through. Verse 6, for these two years the famine has been in the land, and there's still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity or a remnant for you in the earth and to save your life by great deliverance. Now look at verse 8. He said, so now it was not you who sent me here, but God, and he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. And so Joseph said to his brothers, you didn't send me here, God sent me here. You're not in control of my life. God's in control of my life. God sent me here. He used you to do it. But I'm here not at your will, but I'm here at the will of God. And see, that's what I'm saying. He kept his theology sharp. And so we have to apply that to our lives. How do we prevent becoming bitter? What do we do when we find ourselves resentful towards somebody? I'll tell you the first thing you better do. You better see the hand of God in that situation. And you have to understand that whatever it is you have been through in your life, and some people have been through things that are almost unthinkable. And God, I want to be clear on this, would never cause any of those things to happen. But God is nonetheless sovereign, and God is nonetheless in control, and God desires to bring good out of the worst imaginable things that any of us could go through in life. And so if you will see your situation from that perspective, and if you'll see God uh, being involved in that, and it is God the one, who is the one who's allowed you to go through it, then you're going to say, well, now, wait a second. If God allowed this, why would I be bitter at her? Why would I be bitter at him? Why would I be mad at them? If God allowed this to happen, God has a purpose. Why, listen, how could I be bitter at anybody that did something to me that God is ultimately going to use for my good and for his glory if I will keep my faith and walk in a way that will be pleasing to God. And so all of that to say Joseph had a heart full of love and free from bitterness because he kept his theology sharp. Second thing Joseph did, not only did he keep his theology sharp, but Joseph kept his heart tender. He kept his heart tender. That's why all the way through this passage, on and off, he's having to go into a private room. He's weeping. He's crying. He's tenderhearted. What did Paul say, Ephesians 4.32? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. And you could write Joseph's name over that verse. He kept a tender heart. And as I think about that, in fact, look back in chapter number 43. I'll give you another example of Joseph's tender heart. Look in chapter 43 and in verse number 30. It says, now his heart yearned for his brother. That is his younger brother, Benjamin. So Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and he wept there. He had a tender heart. He loved his family. He didn't approve of what they had done, but he loved them nonetheless. And then back in chapter 45, look down in verse uh, number 14. It says, then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. 
Moreover, Joseph kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. And so if ever we read about a tender-hearted man, it is this man's, man Joseph. And you know what this says to me? It says there is a connection on some level between having a good theology, God is in control, God has a plan, God's plan is good, God's going to bring good out of it. There's a connection between ha- having a good theology and a tender heart. In other words, the better your theology, the stronger your faith is what I'm saying, the more tender your heart will be. There's also a connection between having a heart that is tender toward God and having a heart that's tender towards other people too. In other words, Joseph had a real relationship with God. He really did. Joseph knew God, and Joseph spent time in God's presence. Now, he didn't have a Bible like we have, but he had prayer. And there's no doubt in my mind that when Joseph was in that pit, he was praying. When Joseph was headed down to Egypt, he was praying. When Joseph was in that prison, he was praying. I believe Joseph was praying all the way through these experiences and spending that time in God's presence. Now, see, like in the chapel right now, the sun started. You can, you can, you can tell the sun's coming out outside. The beams of the sun, the rays of the sun are coming into this chapel. What does the sun do? It warms us up. I went out in my yard yesterday, not that I needed to be, it was, it's just so hot, but I just went outside after I finished doing, looking over this sermon for the last time at about 3.45, and I said, I'm going to just spend a few minutes out here and, uh, in the sun, and I did. And what did that sun do? Well, it just warmed me up. That's what the sun always does. It warms us. It, 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 it just it, it warms us up. Well, God's pr- God does that to us. God warms our heart. God melts our heart. And sometimes when we have a, a hardness in our heart, bitterness, anger, resentment, grudges, all these things. If we'll just go get in God's presence, the warmth of God's love begins to melt that away. And once that has been melted away, now our heart is warm, our heart is tender. And so in our dealings with others, we can become tender with them. We can love those who have hurt us. We can smile at those who frown at us. We don't have any bad feelings. We love everybody. Because that's what the love of God does. So what I'm saying is, you say, John, how can I have a more tender heart? How can I be more like Joseph? Well, remember, there's a connection between having a good theology and a tender heart. That's the first thing. But also remember this. There's a connection between having a heart that has been warmed by God's presence and having a heart that warms the presence of those who might have hurt us. And so Joseph, he kept his heart tender. He kept his theology sharp. God is in control. Kept his heart tender by living in God's presence and extending that love to others. And then the third and final thing I would say today about Joseph, Joseph made a distinction. This is very important. Joseph made a distinction between a person's behavior and the person himself. He made a distinction between a person's behavior and the person himself. Now, obviously, Joseph did not approve of what his brothers had done. What they had done was wrong. Throwing your brother in a pit is wrong. That's obviously wrong. Selling your brother for profit is wrong. Uh, Accusing somebody of doing something that they never did is wrong. Believing a false accusation is wrong. 
Telling somebody you're going to remember them and help them and then forgetting them, that's wrong. So Joseph didn't approve of any of that. That was all wrong. Some of it was intentionally wrong. Some of it just neglect and unintentionally wrong. But Joseph was somehow able to make a distinction. This is very important. If you want to be free of bitterness, you've got to be able to make a distinction between a person's behavior and the person himself. You see, when we talk about forgiving people, or, or, or releasing them for what it is they have done. That doesn't mean that what they did was no big deal. Some of you listening today have experienced things in your life that were extremely big deals. They were very painful, and they were wrong, wrong in God's eyes, wrong in man's eyes, and wrong in your eyes. So when I'm saying forgive, I'm not saying that you say, well, it's no big deal. No, it was a very big deal. What I'm saying is we have to make a distinction in a person's behavior, what they have done, and the person himself. We have to remember this. No matter who has done what, that person was made in the image of God. And so one of the things that helps me in life, and I don't always get it right. Sometimes I find myself holding a grudge or being a little bit resentful, being a little bit bitter. I'm kind of like Joseph. Have to work through that a little bit sometimes. But Normally, it's a fairly quick process because, I, first of all, I know myself so well, I can say, well, John, you're not perfect. Why would you expect other people to be perfect? So, you know, I think an honest assessment of our own sinfulness goes a long way in, in helping us with our relationships and our dealings with others. And so we have to be reminded of that. And then just to say, you know what, not only are they not perfect, I'm not perfect, nobody's perfect, but I remind myself of this. That person is made in the image of God. Genesis 1.27, we've all been made in the image of God, and it's very important that we remember that. Now, as we come to the end, I just need a few more minutes, and I'm about to finish this sermon, but as we come to the end, I want to quote for the third time Ephesians 4.32, maybe the fourth time. I don't know how many times I've quoted it, but as we thought, think about a takeaway verse from this sermon, I want to give you this one and another one, then I want to tell you a story, then I'm done. But the first takeaway verse is Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. So I mentioned that verse several times today because it's so very important. It's like the sermon in a sentence. And then I want to give you another verse that you may not be as familiar with, but I love this verse. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 23. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 23. And listen to this. And, and as I read this verse to you, see if this doesn't sum up the entire Christian life. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Notice the two verbs in that verse. Believe on Jesus and love one another. Believe in love. Trust God and love people. There's the Bible in a nutshell. There's the Christian life in one verse. What does God expect out of us? He expects us to trust him in the pit, in the caravan down to Egypt, uh, in the prison, falsely accused, when we're forgotten, abandoned, lonely. He expects us to trust him. And not only that, the purpose of the sermon today, he expects us to show the same unconditional love to them, to those who've done whatever they've done to us that he himself has shown to us. Believe on Jesus, trust Jesus, and love one another. And so I'm encouraging you today. Maybe you've had a disagreement with somebody. Listen, disagreements are part of life. Uh, my mother, I've always heard my mother say, speaking about marriage, she, and I've heard her say this as she was talking to different groups. She said, you know what? If a husband and wife agreed on everything, one of them is unnecessary. 
Because, you know, that's the whole point. You, you see different perspectives and different opinions. And she's right on that. So, you know, disagreements. You've had a disagreement with somebody. Well, don't let the disagreement divide you. Don't let the disagreement make you hate the other person. Even if they choose to let the disagreement, you know, cause them to hate you and not be unified with you, you can't control that. That's why Paul said in Romans 12, 18, as, as much as it depends on you, you live at peace with everybody. You can't always control, you can't ever control another person how they might feel toward you, but you can control how you feel toward them. And so, you know what? They may not be at peace with you, but friend, you can be at peace with them. You can have love in your heart with them. They may not speak to you, but you can still love them. And so don't let a disagreement divide you. Don't let an offense cause you to be bitter. Do what Joseph did. Make a distinction. See, this: if we could do this politically in our nation, if we could say, you know what? The person on the other side of the aisle from me, they look at this situation differently than I do. I think, I think their view is crazy. I don't see any logic in their, in their view. But you know what? They're made in the image of God just like I am. And so my job is to love them. We don't have to agree. We can disagree. But we can disagree agreeably. And if we could do that all through life, it would just make it so much better. You remember two weeks ago today, I told you the story about the sermon that Joel Gregory preached at the Southern Baptist Convention in 1988 down in San Antonio about the castle and the wall. Well, at the end of that uh, sermon, he told a story as he was preaching that day to thousands of Southern Baptist messengers who had gathered from all across the nation. And he was appealing to, to all of us there to come together in Christian brotherhood and love and don't let differences on how we interpret this passage or what we think a church ought to do, don't let these differences divide us. And he, what he was saying is, he said, we've built a wall to keep out theological liberalism and to preserve the castle of our denomination. But he said, my fear is that when it's all said and done, if we stay angry and bitter and resentful and all this malice in our hearts, we're going to build a strong wall, but we're not going to have much of a castle left. And as I said at the end of that sermon, Adrian Rogers referred to that as a prophetic word from God, and it was prophetic indeed because the danger there is that the wall would have been built and the castle would have been either destroyed or weakened if that wall is not built in love. If you've not heard that sermon this afternoon, you've got to Google it. The Castle and the Wall Sermon. 36 minutes, fine preaching. But at the end of that sermon, Joel Gregory told this story. And I had never heard it before. He told about the German reformer, Martin Luther. Most of us are familiar with him. We know that he was the leader of the Protestant Reformation. And all Protestant churches in the world today uh, trace our roots back to Martin Luther and his... Uh, revolt really against the established church of the day. The church of that day was teaching that you could be, that the church had the power to save. And Martin Luther said, that's not right. The church doesn't have the power to save. The church cannot forgive sin. The priest cannot forgive sin. Only Jesus Christ can forgive sin. And so he led a reformation and it turned into a, a revolt, but he wasn't the only one who believed that. There were others. And there was a man who lived in Switzerland whose name was Ulrich Zwingli, Ulrich Zwingli. And Zwingli also believed that only Jesus could save. The, 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 the core teaching of the Reformation was the only thing that matters is what God's Word says, and the only thing we can do to be saved is trust Jesus. 
Faith, Scripture alone, grace alone, and faith alone. That was the tenets of the Protestant Reformation. Luther in Germany, Zwingli in Switzerland. These men were in their mid-40s as they were leading in the Reformation, and yet there was one issue that Luther and Zwingli could not agree on, and that was the Lord's Supper. Martin Luther read the New Testament, and he read where Jesus said uh, at the in the Last Supper in the upper room with his disciples as he was serving them the elements there, the bread and the juice, he said, this is my body. And so Luther had a semi-Catholic belief that in the communion that the, the bread literally became the body of Christ. That's what he believed. And Joel Gregory was telling this story. He, he said that he believed that. And Zwingli was more like the Baptist. Zwingli believed that the bread did not become the body of Christ, but the bread represented the body of Christ. It was like a symbol or an emblem of the body of Christ. And these two men agreed on everything except the Lord's Supper, and they couldn't agree on that, and they were constantly butting heads. Luther wrote bad literature about Zwingli, demonizing him. Zwingli wrote similar things back about Luther, and these two men couldn't agree, and they were writing all this. And so finally, the federal government of that day said, we demand that the two of you come together publicly and resolve your differences because it's dividing two countries. Germany and Switzerland are being divided over your two men's, uh, you two men's view of the Lord's Supper. And so on a particular day, on a Monday, Luther and Zwingli met in Marburg, Germany to resolve their differences. And they stood across from each other. And there was a table between them. They were both 46 years of age at this time. And Luther wrote, he got a piece of chalk, and he wrote on that table, this is my body. And he said to Zwingli, when we take communion, that bread becomes the literal body of Christ. And Zwingli said to Martin Luther, whom he admired and looked up to, he said, Martin, I understand what you're saying. I understand why you believe that. He said, But I don't believe it that way. I don't believe that the bread actually becomes the body of Christ. I believe it is a symbol, an emblem, a representation of the body of Christ. And finally, at the end of the debate, Zwingli extended his hand to Martin Luther, and he said, Martin, on this one issue, we don't agree, but I'm asking you, let's put this issue beside us, and let's shake hands today in Christian brotherhood. And one historian says of that occasion that as Zwingli stuck out his hand, uh, he, he so, as he stuck out his hand, he so respected and admired Luther that he had tears in his eyes and he said, Martin, shake my hand. And when he did that, Martin Luther froze his hand, his arm by his side, and he refused to, sw- to shake Zwingli's hand. Luther went on to say to Zwingli, he said, I don't even believe that you are part of the communion of the Holy Church. He refused to shake his hand. Zwingli left the meeting. Not long after that, he was killed on the field of battle. And after Zwingli had been killed, Martin Luther said he deserved it. Now, As I think about that story, and I think about these two great Christians who 
we owe much of what we experience and what we know of God in the Bible in church today to Luther and Zwingli. And yet on this one issue of the Lord's Supper, they could not come together. And because of that, that disagreement divided them and it broke their fellowship. And it made Luther, as much as I love and respect Martin Luther, one of my favorite people in the history of the world, it made him bitter toward Zwingli. I tell that story today at the end of this sermon to say this. There may be someone in your life that you have come to an issue. They see it one way and you see it another. You have your conviction and they have theirs. They're not backing down and neither are you. And what I'm saying today is, even if you never come together on the issue, come together in Jesus. Come together in brotherly love. Now, I wish I could say, and if if we were not in a pandemic, I would say, go out there this week and shake their hand, but we can't shake anybody's hand now. But I'll tell you what we can do. We could pick up the phone and call them and tell them we love them. You don't have to discuss the issue. Just tell them you love them or you were thinking about them. We could send them a text. We could write them a letter. When we see them again, we could wink at them. We could smile at them. We could pat them on the back, and we could let them know just because we're not together on this issue, that doesn't mean that we're not together in our hearts. How can we have a heart full of love and free of bitterness? I'll tell you how. You keep a sharp theology, you keep a tender heart, and you make a distinction between a person's beliefs, behavior, and differences, and the person himself or herself, because that person is still made in the image of God. And I'm encouraging you, metaphorically and symbolically, of course, today, I'm encouraging you this week to extend the hand of Christian brotherhood to someone that you have a difference with and see if God won't honor that in in a very special way. And so, Father, today, I thank you for the life of Joseph. Last week, we saw, God, how he trusted you with all of his heart. And today, we see how he dealt with bitterness. It was a struggle for him at times, And yet, love won out in the end. And I pray that love will win out in our hearts too. Now, with your head bowed and eyes closed today, is there somebody you have a bad feeling towards? Would you ask God to help you with that? Would you ask God to forgive you for being bitter toward them? And would you, right now, I know it's not easy, but would you just say to God, God, you know what they've done, what they've said, what's happened. God, I choose today to forgive them for what it is that they have done to me. Just forgive them and let that offense go. Others today, you really can't extend God's forgiveness to somebody else because you've never received it yourself. Would you pray this prayer? Say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive my sins and make me a Christian. I ask you to save me. I trust you to do it. Welcome to my heart, Lord. Begin now to make me the person you want me to be. In Jesus' name I pray, and all the people said, amen and amen.